The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. I've been nannying for an awesome family in Bellevue this summer and um, have been sitting in a lot of spaces of discernment around what I'm going to do in my own journey next. Um, My boyfriend, Dexter, actually just moved down to Tennessee to work at a college ministry um, that serves students at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. So I'm actually thinking about moving down there. Um, And as I've been at home working and discerning, um, my parents have graciously also allowed us the use, my siblings and I who are living at home, the use of their cars this summer um, to get around town and to go to work and stuff like that. And so about, I think it was a month ago, maybe a month and a half, um, when Dexter was still in town, we were coming from my house over here to the inn, and we ended up in my dad's uh, little zippy Volkswagen, which was great. Um, I'm driving across 520 Bridge, and I notice that the gas light comes on. So I, like, take a mental note on the way back. I need to put a little bit of gas in the tank. So we go to the inn, and then... um, stop here in the U District, grab some gas, um, because I want to be a good daughter and not leave the tank completely empty, but um, I only put $1.79 in just so the gas light would go off, but um, (laughs) we get back in the car, uh, at least I look better that way, but um, we get back in the car and we stop in Bellevue at this park for a while because it's a really nice day, and then, uh, and by the way, the car ran fine going across the bridge coming home, but then um, come back to the car after we're done at the park, and put the key in the ignition, and I try to start it, and it just makes this, like, whirring noise. I was trying to practice it at home, but I can't do it, so I'm not going to demonstrate. But um, I'm trying it over and over again, and, like, people in the park are coming over to look and, like, offer their suggestions about what might be going wrong. So I call my dad, and um, I'm on the phone with him, and I'm like, Dad, something something is wrong with the car. I don't know what the problem is, but it's making this noise. I'm trying to describe it to him, and... Uh, he's like, well, can you, did you do anything else with the car between, like, the last time I saw you and now? And I was like, well, I, the gas light was on, so I put, like, a little bit of gas in the tank, and there's just this, like, silence on the phone. <laughs> and he's just, like, in his most calm, gentle voice, he's like, Liz, please tell me you did not put gasoline in my diesel tank. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, yep, yes, that's what I did. Um, yeah, there's some gas in there, Dad. And then there's just this, like, more silence on the end of the phone. I can just hear my dad's heart breaking. And um, anyways, long story short, um, the car ended up being fine because, thankfully, I'm a cheap person, and I only put this much gas in, so we were able to just flush it out. It was almost no problem. Um, but I tell that story because... When I'm thinking about what happened to what I did to my dad's car, I really feel like I've been doing the same thing in my own relationship with God. Um, And I think it illustrates pretty well this lie that I've been living out in my own life recently. Um, And we just started this series about um, the lies that we believe about God and about ourselves. And over the next several weeks, um, we're going to be talking about one lie at a time. And then we're also going to be talking about the truth in the face of that lie and how we can start living into the truth instead of the lie. Um, So today's lie that we're going to talk about um, is the following. I can make it just fine in my life without spending time consistently in the word and in prayer. 
And lately, like I said, I think I've been doing to myself what I did to my dad's Volkswagen. Um, I put in this fuel to my tank of my own strengths and my own capacities and just my own busyness. And to be honest, like, I seem to make it across 520 Bridge okay. I, I'm functioning on a pretty shallow level, and I seem to be doing fine. And then I hit these moments where um, I completely break down. I hit an emotional low. And instead of changing something about the fuel that I'm putting in my tank, um, I just repeat the cycle. So I just keep working and working and working and staying on the shallow level and then breaking down and crying out and just repeating it over and over again. And the places where I end up breaking down are the places that I find out that the fuel I've been putting into my life isn't actually enough to sustain me. Um, it, it turns out that the fuel that I've created to put inside myself um, doesn't even come close to refreshing the deepest well in my heart. Um, and the, the most recent breakdown that I had um, was actually around this discernment process. Um, while I've been thinking about, okay, will I go to Chattanooga next year? Will I stay here? Um, no matter how many times the wise friends in my life and my mentorship tell me, Liz, you cannot make a wrong decision. It's going to be okay. You cannot make a wrong decision. Um, I seem just stuck clinging on to this idea that that there's this like scavenger hunt that I'm on and I just need to find the next clue and then God's going to be happy with me. And so I'm getting stuck in this process. And um, my response to the stress of making the decision, um, I think deep down I really do want to go to Tennessee. But um, the way I've been responding to the stress is to spend, like, this is kind of embarrassing, but I spend, like, hours online scouring the Internet, trying to find, like, a job in Tennessee and trying to find more people to call who I can get in contact with and just controlling the situation with everything that I have in me. Um, and there was there was one time, this was, again, about a month ago, and... I had this, like, hour of just really fruitless Internet research, and I'd had it. So I get up um, out of my room, walk out of my house, and just go on this walk, and I just start complaining to God and just start, you know, venting my frustrations, everything that I'm afraid of, um, just all these feelings I'm having. And um, at the same time, I also have in the back of my mind that I'm going to be preaching about spending time with God. And so um, I had this moment of clarity, and I feel like, God was using this gentle voice and saying to me, so Liz, is that fuel that you've created that you're running on, is that really working for you? Um, And I'm wondering if you guys have ever hit that spot before where you've been going for a while just relying on your own capacities, the things that you know, the things to keep you on that shallow functioning level, and then all of a sudden your engine just quits. Maybe, Maybe there's something really tragic that happens to you or someone in your life. Um, and the things that kept you functioning are no longer are no longer there. Or maybe there was something that you thought you were really going to succeed at, something that you had really banked on, and then you ended up failing, or in the end it didn't come through, and now you're feeling kind of lost. Or maybe there was a relationship in your life that you depended on, that you were counting on to be there and sucking life from it to bring life to yourself, and now the relationship is gone, and you're wondering what happened. Um, and my point is, haven't we all reached that place at one time or another where our shallow existence that we are somehow maintaining breaks down and we realize that the fuel that we put inside ourselves is simply not enough? Um, and I want to be really clear about something before we move on, and that's the fact that 
Um, God is not a vending machine. What I'm not going to say to you is that you spend 15 minutes with God in prayer, you spend 15 minutes reading your Bible, and then God is going to dish out grace and blessing and love. That's not how it works. Um, And maybe this truth will be the most important thing that you hear in this talk. Do you know that it is impossible for you to influence how deeply God loves you? Absolutely impossible. Um, Our spending time with God has absolutely no effect, good or bad, on his posture towards us, which is always one of unconditional love. He loved us like that before we could even ask him to. And when Jesus, I think when we picture Jesus on the cross, we hear him say, it is finished. And I think most of us accept the fact that when he said, it is finished, that meant God did his part to restore humanity to himself. But I wonder if we realize that when, when Jesus said, it is finished, he did, he did his part, but then he also stepped in and did our part as well. So the work is done, guys. It's done. Um, this this talk that I'm giving you is not about do more work so that God will love you. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So, if spending time with God doesn't earn us anything from him, then what difference does it make to, one, know his word, and two, spend time in prayer? Uh, please take a minute to pray with me. God, um, maybe the process of this talk for me has been so that you can open me back up again to you. And um, every word that I'm going to say tonight has been something directly that you've done in my own experience, God. And I, I pray, I'm so confident that your spirit is at work in this room. And I'm so confident that you are embracing every single person here. And I, I guess my prayer is that you, would, that you would open the eyes of everyone here to see the way that you are embracing them and longing to heal them and transform them, God. Um, I pray that your spirit would make the words stick that you want to stick and let everything else just drop to the ground. Um, Thank you for who you are. In your name, amen. So let's start with knowing God's word. If spending time in scripture doesn't earn us anything, then what difference does it make to spend time in it and know what it says? Um, We're going to look at Psalm 119. And maybe you guys have been flipping through the book of Psalms before and you come across this one that's like, eight pages long, Psalm 119. Um, And I was reading through this psalm really carefully, and it turns out uh, that it's a love song about God's word, about the laws and statutes that God commanded Israel to live by. Um, And as I was reading the, here's the interesting thing I picked up on. I'm reading it, and I'm realizing that the psalmist is using really exciting language to talk about the word of God. Like, he's, he's really excited, a little overly excited. I was a little shocked. I was like, take it easy. Calm down. Um, now, just to give you guys an idea, um, let's take a look at a few of the verses. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Verse 162, I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth? Verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. Verse 72, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Um, I think everyone who knows me the best in my life could honestly say that they have never heard me talk about scripture this way. Maybe I've talked about like 
a Chipotle burrito in this way, but never about scripture. And most of the time that I'm talking about spending time in scripture, I talk about it like it's a huge burden. Um, so I'm reading this, and these things are not lining up the way I think about scripture and the way the psalmist is talking about it. And so I conclude, the psalmist has to know something about God's word and his commands and his laws that I just haven't picked up on yet. Um, so I, I went to Bellevue Christian School when I was in junior high and played soccer all the way through and loved it. And this one time, um, I remember it was a Thursday, um, and we had a big game against our arch rivals, the Cedar Park Eagles. And um, my friend and I, who was on the team, in our mischief, instead of eating these really great healthy lunches our moms had packed for us, um, we ended up consuming these white chocolate mocha milkshakes that our friend's dad had brought to campus that day for lunch. And, you know, at the time, it seemed like a great idea. They were totally delicious. But um, once, we got, uh, once we got to the field and started warming up, um, we were, my friend and I were absolutely toasted because we're, we're warming up and all of a sudden these, like, massive side aches start happening. And we're both just, like, looking for opportunities to get to the sidelines so we can throw up. And, um, by the way, like, my friend and I are two-thirds of the defensive line, so it's, like, not shaping up to be a good thing. And um, the game starts, and I actually remember <laughs> this one point where um, one, of my, one of the midfielders was barking back at me to get to the sideline to mark my man and, like, trying to get me to go over there. And I actually remember, like, bending over and being like, can, can you do it? I said, can you do it? And so it just was really, it was pathetic, really. Um, and our poor coach is over on the sideline just holding his head going, what happened to my defensive line? I have no idea what could be going on, but they're a sorry excuse for a defense. So... Um, so if I, would have, if I would have consulted my coach about what I should eat before my soccer game, um, I think, and listened to him, I think this story would have ended up being really different. Um, I know he would have suggested to eat that healthy lunch that my mom packed for me. And he probably would have said, eh, for your own sake, maybe don't have the grande milkshake. Maybe you could stay away from that one. Um, and instead of experiencing this misery that I was experiencing on the field, I could have just filled myself with this freedom and this ability to run around in the game and experience the full joy that the game had to offer. And so I tell you that story because I wonder if that is the secret that the psalmist knows. I wonder if the secret he knows about God's commands and his word is that they bring freedom and they bring life. So let's look at some of these verses again. Verse 32 I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Verse 45, I walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. I actually looked up that one in the message, and it said, I'll stride freely through wide open spaces. Um, Verse 165, great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. So imagine that God is our coach in the game of life. Okay, and he knows really well this game that we're playing. He knows us as individual players and the skills that we have because he gave us those skills. Um, In fact, he designed us. And part of what we find in Scripture is God's directions on how to play that game and live our lives the most fully. And things like the Ten Commandments, don't don't kill each other. Don't um, covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't sleep with your spouse's 
or excuse me, don't, that came out wrong. Don't sleep with your neighbor's spouse. Um, these are not, I know that's a little bit slip at the time. Yeah, one of the two. Um, these, these commands are not about God's restricting our life, but they're actually about his restricting our pain and guiding us away from the things that are going to destroy us and suck the life out of us and drain all the joy from our systems. So when God gives Israel this list of commands and these laws that the psalmist is talking about, um, he's giving them a way to stay free of pain and suffering so they can run about in the fullness of this life that he has imagined for them. So spending time in Scripture is this incredible way that we can meditate on the knowledge that is going to free us. And even, even Jesus, the word made flesh, said to us, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Excuse me. Um, so knowing scripture has nothing to do with earning, but everything to do with experiencing freedom that God created us for. I'm going to say that again. Knowing scripture has nothing to do with earning, earning God's love, but has everything to do with experiencing the freedom that God created you and I for. Okay, so moving on. Why why would we spend time in prayer? And by prayer, I mean spaces being quiet with God, spaces where we pour out our hearts to him, spaces where we listen to his voice. And I'm definitely not going to try to paint this broad picture of prayer because that would frankly take years. So... Um, But what I will say about it is that one of the main reasons that I think we spend time in dialogue and in quiet with God is to experience his transformation. And by transformation, that's kind of a big word that we throw around in Christian community. But what I mean by transformation is, one, the correction of lies that we have heard and believed about God. Two, his healing of the wounds in our hearts. And three, the rebuilding of his new life inside of us. And there's this story in Luke chapter 15 that I think is, um, I think it can teach us something about how transformation happens. And this is a story where you guys are going to probably find it very familiar, but Jesus is trying to explain to the Pharisees, these teachers of God's law, what the Father is really like. And in the story, there's the Father and two sons. So in the story, each son in his own way, develops a different lie in his heart about who the father really is. Son number one is the son who comes to dad, and he's like, basically, dad, wish you were dead. Can I have my half of the inheritance now, please? And then he runs off and starts partying and spending on prostitutes and drinking and all these things and ends up in this really miserable place and just wants to come home. Um, And he ends up with a lie in his heart that he is no longer worthy to receive God's love, that he's no longer worthy to be called the father's son. And all the while, son number two is over here, and he stays home, and he works hard on the father's property um, in order to keep what he thinks, keep his father pleased. And he ends up with this lie that he needs to perform well, he needs to achieve, he needs to work faithfully in order for his father to continue loving him. So, son number one, when he returns home, his lie gets completely turned upside down. He comes home, and he's expecting dad to be like, okay, well, since you're here, I guess you're no longer going to be my son, but if you want, you can work in the house, and we can see how that works out. But instead, what happens 
is that the father is like waiting and watching the horizon, waiting for his son, son to come home. He sees his son on the horizon and starts sprinting out to meet him, which, by the way, is like really culturally inappropriate for a man of that stature to do. And he comes out, and he puts the family ring back on the son's finger, and he clothes him and puts sandals on his feet and basically says, hey, we're going to get the biggest, most delicious cow we have and have this huge party for you because you were lost and now you're found. I'm so excited you're home. So now this lie that son number one had, that he wasn't worthy to be a son anymore, gets completely destroyed. And so what happens when son number two finds out? Son number two starts ranting that it's completely unfair. I think we can all feel this, that it's completely unfair that this son made a complete fool out of his father and then comes home and the dad just throws him a huge party. And... Um, and what he says is, Dad, I've been, he actually uses the word slaving. I've been slaving for you all these years, and you've never once given me and my friends even a small goat to have a party with ourselves. And so in that space, the father destroys his lie of needing to perform and to be loved by saying, Son, you have always been with me, and everything that I have is yours. So the father consented friend number one, son number one, with the truth that it's impossible for him to lose his sonship, that he is permanently and unconditionally loved no matter what. And the father bombarded son number two with the truth that, he, that the son had been working all this time to earn a love that has always been his. It couldn't be earned. It could only be received. And like I said, that story is probably really familiar to you guys. So if you tune out a little bit, tune back in for this part. Um, I want you guys to notice when in this story do we see the beginning of the son's trans- transformation on, in both parties? When in the story does that happen? And what I want us to notice is that it happens when they come into the father's presence. Friends, God's presence is the transforming agent in our lives. And when we spend spaces in quiet with God, just being with him, it's not like all of a sudden he wakes up and realizes that we're there and starts attending to our needs, but it's more like when we sit in those spaces, we wake up to see how much he's longing to heal and transform and restore the lied to and the broken places in our hearts. That he's been embracing us all along and we just get a chance to sit in it and actually experience it and realize it. So over the last three or four weeks, I've done this experiment getting ready for this talk where I've started spending time in spaces with God in quiet and in, and in prayer, um, just because I thought maybe that would be a good thing to do in giving this talk. But, um, and what I realized as I started spending time with God daily um, that in this decision-making process I've been going through, uh, somewhere under the surface, I'd subtly started clinging to this lie that um, that making a wrong decision about what comes next is going to separate me from the love of God. And that making a wrong decision um, puts me in this place where I'm about like two steps from God discontinuing his love for me. And there was this one day that I just was, I was just feeling an anxiety about it all day and... Um, You know, I'd heard a few words that people had spoken to me and was feeling a little judged by a few people that I know about making a decision to go be with my boyfriend in Tennessee and just feeling so overwhelmed by fear. 
I remember coming home and just going straight to my room and sitting down and just sobbing and kind of trying to talk to God about this huge fear that I was feeling. Um, And I sat with him in that space, and I kind of asked him, like, what is it that you want to say to me? I hear what the voices of these other voices telling me, but what, God, what do you want to say? And the thing that I heard him speak over and over and over again in that space was, Liz, you are okay. You are loved. He just spoke it over and over and over again. And I just sat in it, and I cried, and I just soaked it up. And um, I guess the point I want to make is that my spending time with God, this experiment I've done, has earned me nothing with God, nothing in my relationship with him. So what did it do? What it did was it allowed me to experience freedom in making a decision because I, I can know that no matter what I do next, God is really still going to love me. I have no influence on his love for me. And the second thing it did for me is that it allowed me to receive God's healing touch on this really tender wound in my life, this fear that I had that I am just this far away from God abandoning me. And so actually I'm going to have um, our volunteers pass out some paper and pens for you guys. That's gonna, I'm going to explain what that's for in a minute. Um, and I want to invite you guys into a challenge this week. Um, kind of the same experiment that I did. For one week, so from today till next Tuesday, each day, make some space for God. And maybe you're already doing that pretty well, and that's awesome. Maybe this will just be a refresher for you and you can try it out. But um, what I want you to do is make space for God and be creative. Um, Do not make this about legalism. So maybe go for a walk and just try pouring your heart out to God and just tell him what's going on in your life. Maybe it means putting on, sitting in your room, putting on some music that helps you focus on how much he loves you. Or maybe it means reading through Psalm 119 for yourself or sitting in the story of the prodigal son and spending that time in scripture. Whatever, whatever it means for you, again, don't make it legalistic, but do something to clear out the voice and just make a quiet space. And just try it for a week. See what happens. I'm going to, a little disclaimer here. Um, for me, over the last month, as I've done this experiment with myself, um, there's been a lot of days when I'm like, meh, that was fine. Nothing really happened. I didn't feel anything. Um, and so if you end up in those spaces where you feel like you're doing these things but nothing's happening, I want you to resist the urge to place expectations on what God's going to do with that time. If you don't get the emotional responses that you're expecting, it's not because you're doing something wrong. I want you guys to let go of that part of it. Um, and really, I want to give you this picture of what we're doing by partaking in this experiment. What we're doing is we're going from a place of walking around with our hands like this, just all day, walking around with our hands closed, to a, spa- to a place where we're walking around more like this, in, in, a, in a way that God can drop things in our hands, in a way that we can receive the things that he longs to give us. So just to get you started, um, you're going to use that pen and paper in a minute. But right now I want everyone to close their eyes. That would be great. Close your eyes. What I want you to do right now is in your head, I want you to picture a place in your life where you long to be unchained, 
where you are longing to experience rest or to experience freedom. And I want you guys to be really specific as you're forming these pictures in your mind. Imagine a place in your life where the energy in the life is being sucked out of you and where you feel drained. Be really specific. Okay, now that you've identified that picture, hopefully. Um, now, Now in your head, I want you to picture your deepest place of pain. The deepest place where you maybe feel shame. Where are you experiencing agony and suffering? Maybe I can put it this way. If, if you could picture one thing in your head right now that you want God to heal in your life and heart, what would it be? Be really specific as you're picturing that thing. Okay, now now that, that deep place of pain, I want you to picture yourself holding it in your hands. You're sitting on the ground, and picture God coming to you and squatting down in front of you, and imagine him looking you directly in the eyes. His eyes are full of compassion for you. And listen to him speak to you. Child, do you know how ready and willing I am to give you freedom? Will you trust me? Child, that dark space in your heart that you are weighed down by or ashamed by or scared of, it doesn't shock me. It doesn't scare me. My love for you is infinitely stronger than that thing will ever be. Will you trust me to heal it? And as you're opening your eyes, I want you to take that sheet of paper that you received earlier and spend the next five to ten minutes just journaling and writing, talking to God about, one, the place you pictured where you are desperate for freedom. And two, I want you to write about the place of woundedness in your life that you held out before him, that you are longing for him to heal.